Acts chapter number 2 tonight, and I'd just like to read a few verses, beginning in verse number 22. This, of course, is a sermon by Peter on the day of Pentecost. And he makes this statement. He says, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Let's read that verse 24 again. It says, Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, bless your word tonight, Lord. I need your help. I need your strength this evening. But more than that, I need the unction of the Holy Ghost in the preaching of your word. I pray that you'd affect each heart, open each heart, and speak to each heart in a way that would glorify you, Lord, and we'll be sure to thank you. Open our eyes to these truths and make them real in our life. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for loving us enough to give your Son to die for us, and thank you for loving Him enough to raise Him from the dead. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, here in a moment, I want to preach to you on verse number 24. But I think by way of introduction, it's important that we notice everything that Peter's dealing with in this passage. It's interesting to me that he uses the title Jesus of Nazareth. Now, something you'll find as you study the Word of God is that uh, the only people that ever called Jesus Jesus were those that were uh, either his enemies or unfamiliar with him. The disciples always called him Lord or Master or Savior. Uh, They never just called him by his first name. It was his earthly name that was given to him by God. The angel said to Mary that thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And when Peter is addressing these people at Pentecost, he uses the earthly title or the earthly name of our Lord and Savior. The reason is because Peter is trying to present to these people the argument that this person whom they believed was just a man whom they believed just to be the carpenter from Nazareth, just this teacher from Galilee, this one that they thought was just so ordinary and so commonplace, this one uh, that they had scorned His teaching and they had tried to cast off His authority, that this same Jesus was the very Son of God. And so Peter is presenting this truth from the angle or idea of Jesus being a man, but that God has shown Him to be the Son of God. And you'll find a basic outline here that I want to give you in this in my sermon, but we find in verse number uh, 22 the proof of His life. Look what it says. It says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs. We have the demonstration of the power of God in Jesus' life. Can I tell you, there wasn't never anybody that did things like Jesus did. There wasn't never anybody that could work in the heart and the life like Jesus did. I mean, some men... Uh, could open blinded eyes, but He opened blinded eyes that had been blinded from birth. Uh, Some people, you know, they might be able to raise the dead, but He raised the dead after it was four days late. Uh, I mean, it's evident when you look at the life of Jesus that He was no ordinary man. We see the demonstration of the power of God, but we see the origination of this power. It says, which God did by Him in the midst of you. Isn't it interesting? Now listen carefully. Isn't it interesting uh, that in 30 years of His life, Jesus never 
never did a miracle until he was baptized in the river Jordan and the Spirit of God in the likeness of a dove came down and rested upon him. Now, I've heard some people say, well, you know, Jesus probably did miracles when he was a little boy, probably healed little birds with broken wings and little puppy dogs who, uh, I don't know, had their tail cut off or some kind of foolishness. And listen, those are all good thoughts. And if you want to go back and live in your Disney movie, that is your choice. But the book of John chapter 2 says this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee. You see, he, he never once did a miracle before he turned that water into wine. And you say, well, what is the significance, preacher, of that truth? The significance is this. He waited until the Spirit of God had publicly rested upon him so that those around him could understand that this was not merely charlatan's tricks, this wasn't a snake oil salesman, this wasn't just uh, cheap magic, but this was the very uh, power of God being shown to be true in his life. We see the origination of these things, but I believe also we see the corroboration of these things. Look what it says. It says, as ye yourselves also know. Now, we talked a little bit about that this morning. The empty tomb, uh, for instance, is uh, not just fairy tale, not just fable. Now, there's some that would like to believe that it is. In fact, you'll find if you'll get on the Internet or, uh, I don't know, turn on the news or anything around Easter time, there's always some uh, fool on there. Now, you say, preacher, that's just unkind. No, the Bible says that the fool hath said in his heart there is no God. That's Bible language. And you say, well, you're calling that person a fool. No, God's called them a fool, and I'm agreeing with what God said. There'll be some fool on there saying that uh, it was nothing but just fairy tales and allegories that were given uh, to help people that were suffering and hurting. But you'll find if you'll read secular history, even it attests to the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. And certainly his life and the miracles that he performed, I mean, there's plenty around that could have discounted it if they had wanted to discount it. But there was many that had seen. So we see the proof of his life, but we see the providence of his death. Look in verse number 23. It says, Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken him by wicked hands, have crucified and slain. We see his delivery spoken of. It says he was delivered uh, by the, pre- uh, well, if I can get it right here, by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. In other words, uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Let me tell you something, there wasn't enough armies, uh, past, present, and future, all combined to bind the Son of God to that cross if He hadn't wanted to go. If God hadn't chose to send Him to the cross, what was it that the songwriter said? He could have called 10,000 angels. I'll go a step further than that. Uh, He could have spoke this world out of existence if He had chosen to. But what was He doing on the cross? I like the song that says it was love that held Him there. It was love that had love for you and love for I. That was what was strong enough to hold the Savior there. But let me go even a step further than that and say it wasn't just love, it was providence. You see, God had foreordained that Christ would go to the cross of Calvary. It was God that had delivered Him up. It was God that had brought Him uh, to a cross. But you say, well, what about the Jews? Well, the Bible deals with that. We see His delivery, but we see His detainment. Look what it says there. It says, ye have taken... Ye have taken. I've had a lot of people ask about this, and I'll give you an example. Uh, in the life of Judas, for instance, people have said before, uh, you know, could Judas have been saved? Let me answer it for you. Could Judas have been saved? Judas wasn't saved. That's what it comes down to. Could Judas have been saved? Did Christ die for Judas? Yeah, he died for Judas, just like he died for everybody that he knows will reject him. But the fact of the matter is, Judas didn't know that. Judas chose to betray the Son of God. 
And so Judas deserved uh, to die and go unto his own place, just as you and I deserve to die and go to our own place. Judas scorned the mercy of God. Stop and think about it for a minute. Do you realize that Judas, uh, the Lord loved Judas so much, the Lord treated Judas so impartially that for three and a half years uh, he walked with the Lord, and nobody, when it came time that the Lord said, one of you will betray me, nobody looked over at Judas and said, it must be him. Nobody could sense a rift. Nobody could sense a problem. Uh, The love of God was just as warm towards Judas as it had been towards the other disciples. But you see, Judas made his choice. And even though it was foreordained that Judas would betray him, Judas still bore the responsibility of his choice because we all are agents of free will, every single one of us. And so, of course, God had delivered up the Jew, uh, Jesus to the uh, Jews. Of course, God had sent him to the cross of Calvary, but the Jews weren't doing it to fulfill the will of God. The Jews were doing it because they hated Christ, because they hated the Messiah. You say, that's anti-Semitic. No, that's historical. That's historical is what that is. Don't forget for one minute, hey, it was the Jews' voices that cried aloud. It was the Roman nails that put him on the cross, but it was our sin that placed him there. I'm not being anti-Semitic, but it's a historical fact that the Jews were the ones that took him and nailed him to the cross. We see his detainment. They've taken him. Uh, But then we see not only his detainment, we see his death. It says there, uh, by wicked hands have crucified and slain him. There again, that language is indicative. By wicked hands have taken and crucified and they've slain him. By wicked hands. In other words, even though God had delivered him up, the blood was still on the hands of those that had taken and nailed him to the cross. They had chosen to do it of their own free will. So we see the providence of his death. Then I like this verse 24. We see the power of his resurrection. You just stay with me. We ain't even preached yet. We see the power of his resurrection. Notice what it says, whom God hath raised up. We see the source of his resurrection. God raised him up by his power. Now, some of you are going to get ready. You're going to say here in a minute, but I thought he said, I lay down my life and I take it up again. And he very well did say that. We'll talk about it here in a moment. But can I just can I just drop this on you? Do you know that never once was the will of the son and the will of the father out of harmony? Uh, he, He said, this power have I received from my father. God gave him the power to raise himself up again. And he did raise himself up, but it was God that had given him the power, that right, that authority. You see, life belongs to God and death belongs to God. He can do with it as he pleases. And he bestowed that power, that right, that authority upon his son. It was God that raised him up from the dead. But we see the setting free from death as well as the source of his resurrection. Look what it says. It says, having loosed the pains of death. Boy, I looked at these words for a long time as I studied this. And I looked at that word pains. And uh, you know what it means? You'll only find this if you study in the Greek now, okay? That word pains, you know what it means? It means pains. <laughs> it means pains, the sorrows. This same word is used with the idea of birth pains, the, uh, the trial and the tribulation and the suffering that a person goes through. And let me say that uh, for the lost soul, the pains of death do not end when they leave this realm. They die a second death is what the Bible calls it, an eternal death that they are dying, and there's pains there. But I looked at that word loose as well. And you know, I found another time that that word loose is used in the Bible. In John chapter, and I ain't going to go there, but in John chapter number 11, as they stood outside the tomb of a man by the name of Lazarus, all weeping, all despair, all hopelessness, the Lord said, roll that stone away. And He says, Lazarus, come forth. And all of a sudden they hear a rumble inside. (laughs) 
And uh, Lazarus comes out, but he's not running. He's not running. He's got those grave clothes on. He's got those death clothes on. And you know what Christ said? He said, loose him and let him go. That same word for the death clothes. And what it's saying in this passage is that our Lord went through the darkness and shroud of death, but by the power of God, uh, God removed those death clothes, that death grip, that death hold that was upon Him. God released Him from that and loosed Him from the pains of death. But then we come to the sermon tonight, and I want you to see what it says. We see His supremacy over death. Because it says, because it was not possible that He should be holding up. That's one thing to say that he was not holding of it. It's another thing to say it was not proper that he was holding of it. It's another thing to say it was not likely that he should be holding of it. The Bible says it was not possible that he should be holding of it. Now, that's significant tonight. And I want to give you five reasons I see in the Word of God that I believe that death could not hold our Lord and Savior. Can I say to you tonight that there was never a maybe about the empty tomb? There was never a hope so about the empty tomb. It was an impossibility that Jesus Christ should stay dead. There was no way that it could have happened. And you say, well, preacher, why is that? I'm going to give you these five things. I would say, first off, that it was impossible because of the payment of sin. I touched on it this morning, but Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. 1 Corinthians 15.56 says, The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. So there's a direct correlation between sin and death. The Bible tells us in the book of James that lust, when it hath conceived, bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Death is the automatic result of sin. And you say, well, preacher, I sinned the other day and I've not died. Let me give you two answers for that. One is this. Even though you'll never lose your salvation, spiritually you did die a little when you did that. And I'm not saying you're going to lose your salvation. I'm thankful we're eternally saved and eternally secure. But I'm saying this, that spiritual man that was within you, he grew a little bit weaker when you committed that sin. But then let me give you a second truth about it. Uh, Just because it brings forth death. Hey, there's a lot of things that bring forth death that don't bring it forth in that very moment. I mean, listen, we, we live in a world, we live in a world of double bacon, triple patted, cheese slathered, butter covered, with whipped cream on top, and I say amen to that. But the truth of the matter is, it's going to catch up with all of us. And we may not, I mean, we may not die of a heart attack, but we're just going to get all, we're going to get so fat we can't move, so what's going to happen, amen? And, and we're just going to suffocate on our own selves. That's where we're all headed. I mean, that's the world that we live in, you understand. But you eat those things, you may not, I mean, listen, hallelujah, you don't die every time you eat a plate of biscuits and gravy. I mean, that ain't liberty. Listen, I I mean, hey, God's made us free so that we can eat pork, amen? That's New Testament. That's grace. That's grace. There's nothing wrong with that. But the truth is, you keep on and keep on and keep on, and it will bring forth death in your body. Well, sin is the same way. Sin always has a a product of death in any person's life. But I believe there's also a third way in which this is true, Brother Ralph. And that is that as a race, as a people, as God's creation, when we sinned, when Adam sinned, death entered into the realm of human experience. The Bible says, uh, for as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, in that all of sin, Romans 5, 12. Every single one of us, if the Lord tarries His coming, we're going to face 
death because we're sinners. But now you may say, well, why why is it that, that sin causes death? Well, because there was law given. And God said, this is my law, and the soul that sinneth, it shall die. The soul that commits a transgression against this is going to die. You're going contrary to your Creator, contrary to your purpose in this world. God is good, God is love, God is light, God is truth. And when you go contrary to that, you bring death and darkness and destruction into your life. So you say, preacher, what are you getting at? When Christ went to the cross of Calvary, He had already through His sinless life fulfilled every single jot and tittle of the law. And when He went to the cross of Calvary, He paid for the sin debt of every single man, woman, and child ever born into this world. And so after He died upon the cross, you know what it says? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know why death has a right to your life? Death has a right to your life because you're a sinner. But Jesus Christ, He never was a sinner. So how did he die? Well, Second uh, Corinthians 5.21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He couldn't even die until he became sin. He couldn't even experience death until he became your sin and became my sin. But then after he became our sin, uh, he bore our sin, and then he buried our sin, and he paid for every single bit of it. After sin had been paid for, listen to what the Bible says about uh, death. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 9 and 10, it says, Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. Well, why did he die unto sin once? Because he paid for everyone's sins. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. I'm saying that death could not hold him because death had no right over him. He couldn't die before He became our sin because death had no right over Him, but He became our sin for you and I. And He paid for our sin, and after He paid for it, death had no... You you know that's how righteous Jesus Christ is. He's so righteous, He's so powerful, He's so omnipotent uh, that He could bear the sins of the entire world. And it didn't destroy Him. He came through it. Why did He come through it? Because He's the Son of God. Because He's that righteous... He could bear all of our sins, and He came through the other side. And when He came through the other side, I'm sure death wanted to look at Him and say, Whoa, you got no right to leave here. And He turned around and said, Whoa, you got no right over Me. I've paid for sin. You've got no right. You've got no say. Or as the Bible says, He might have looked at old death and said, You have no dominion over Me. I am the Son of God. I am eternally righteous, and I have paid for the sins of humanity. I think because the payment of sin, death had no uh, hold upon him. But I think because the prevailing against Satan. Listen to what it says in Hebrews 2.14. It says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he, who's the he? Well, he's the eternal he, the Son of God. He also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. That is, the devil. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute, preacher. You just said a moment ago that God has the power over life and death. And the Lord does have the power over life and death. But understand that Satan, being the tempter and accuser of the brethren, he doesn't have power over death, but he does have the power of death. You know, it goes on to say uh, that the Lord has delivered those that were kept in fear under bondage their entire lifetime. 
Do you understand that whenever Christ defeated sin, he defeated the devil? Because you know what the devil does is the accuser of the brethren, as the book of Revelation chapter 12 calls him. The devil comes alongside and looks at the sinner and says, you're worthless, you're filthy, you're rotten, you're a sinner, you're on your way to hell, and you're going to die one of these days. And he's every whit right. But when Christ paid for sin on Calvary, oh, now there's a, now, oh, now there's a justification that's taken place. Now we're forgiven. Now we're righteous. Now we belong to someone else. And now we have assurance, as the book of 1 John tells us. And so now when the devil comes along and looks at us, the devil says, you're filthy. And we say, yep. And he says, you're rotten. And we say, yep. And he says, you're wicked. And we say, yep. And he says, you're going to die one day. And we say, yep. And he says, you're going to go to hell. And we say, nope, I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. You have no power of death over me anymore because I'm not afraid of death anymore. Death is no longer my destruction. (laughs) Death is my graduation. Death is no longer my suffering. Death is my sweet entrance into the presence of my Lord and Savior. But let me go a step further than that and say in the life of Christ, when He defeated Satan, He defeated all the power of death. The Bible says in the book of Colossians that He spoiled Him and made an open show of Him. The devil, and and listen, I'm not going to try to enter into some kind of Dante's Inferno hierarchy in hell that the Bible never teaches. But I will say this, the devil seeks to keep those that don't know Christ in ignorance and to discourage those that do know Christ. And he uses death to discourage, and he uses death to derail, and he uses death to try to cause people to doubt. And when Christ died for our sins, we don't have that fear anymore. Not only, listen, and he never had a fear, but I kind of think the devil probably uh, came along and whispered in his ear. And I understand, listen, if you think the devil reigns over hell, you're sadly mistaken. The devil does not reign over hell. The devil is the prince, the power of the air, and the god of this world. The devil does not reign over hell. Uh, one of these days, he's headed to a lake of fire. It's, it's not his personal playground. Hell is not uh, his, his uh, personal playground and his uh, leisurely place. It ain't his lake home or his vacation home. Uh, but I kind of imagine uh, that the devil may have come up beside the Lord and said, you're never going to get out of here. You're never going to get out of here. You know what he might have said? He might have said, I've gotten you. I've gotten you. There is a mystery of iniquity which worketh, the Bible teaches. And there is a satanic plan. There always has been. You can go through the Old Testament and you'll find it time and time again. You'll find that, listen, when God was raising up Abel, Satan was raising up Cain. You'll find when God was raising up Isaac, Satan was raising up Ishmael. And you'll find that all through the Old Testament, hey, you'll find that when the children of Israel were in bondage in Egypt and God was raising up Moses, that Satan was turning the heart of Pharaoh against the children of Israel and the infants. And there was a great slaughtering. You'll find this uh, took place uh, later on. Uh, By the way, do you ever wonder why it was? Listen now, you ever wonder why it was that Abraham cast out the bondwoman and his son? Do you know why it was uh, that uh, Satan was trying to make sure that Ishmael stayed a part of the family? Because he was trying to cause some sort of doubt as to who the promised child was. 
He was trying to cause some kind of doubt as to God's plan. You ever wonder why it was that Satan put it in the heart of Sarah to have Abraham go in unto Hagar, his handmaid, and to have a child by... Satan was trying to muddy the waters of who the promised child was. And over and over again, you'll find that Satan has attempted to thwart the promised seed. You say, why is he so concerned about this promised seed? Oh, because the first prophecy in the Bible, you know, deals with that promised seed. In Genesis 3.15, when the Lord said, that there would be an enmity between thou and the woman, between thee, uh, thy seed and her seed. And the Bible says uh, that thou shalt bruise his heel, but he shall crush thy head or bruise your head. There was a promise given that the promised seed of the Lord would destroy Satan. When did that happen? That happened on Calvary. That happened when He bore our sin. That happened when He entered into the veil of darkness and of death and came out the other side. And I kind of wonder if Satan may have come along and said, you know, I finally got you. I finally got you. I've been trying for all these years and I finally got you. (laughs) The only problem is he didn't know when he was licked, did he? He didn't understand that this power that he thought he had over Christ, this power of death, this power of fear, Christ oh, Christ had entered into his domain so that he could take him captive. That, that's what we call a Trojan horse, isn't it? Amen? I, he had entered into death's domain that he might take captive the keys of death and hell. They belong to a new master. I'd say because of the, uh, because of the devil... And because of the prevailing against Satan, but I think also because of the promise of God, death could not hold him. Listen to what the Bible says, and I touched on this this morning, but it's actually immediately following the verses that we've read. Look at verse 25. It says, For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. I believe that death had no hold on him because he had paid for sin and he had prevailed against Satan, but because his resurrection was promised of God. You see, God had recorded, God had had David pin down this prophecy that the Lord would not allow Christ to see corruption and the Lord would not leave him in hell. Do you understand the power of the Word of God? Do you understand the Bible says that the Scripture cannot be broken You know what that word broken is, by the way? (laughs) That word broken is that same word that's used for loosed. And that word has the idea of falling apart or coming to pieces. The Bible says about itself that the Scripture, Christ said that the Scripture cannot fall apart. Not one word of it will fall to the ground. Not one jot nor one tittle shall pass away till all be fulfilled. And when God said that Christ would raise from the dead... And listen, I wish I had something deeper to preach. I wish I had something more complex. I wish I had something to make you go, wow, I've never heard anything like that. But what I'm telling you tonight is one of the most foundational and important truths in all of this puny and pitiful world's existence that when God speaks something, it is absolute truth. When he said he'd raise from the dead, it meant he would raise from the dead. Do you understand the Bible says uh, in the book of Colossians that we understand, in the book of Hebrews, that we understand uh, that by faith the worlds were framed? Do you understand that whenever God created this world, he spoke it into existence? The Word of God is the very foundation of the world. I've talked about this before, but it's been a while, and I think we all need to hear it, or I need to hear it as much as anyone does. Do you understand that when God created this world, he could have done anything, but what did he do? The Bible says he spake and said, let there be. 
So we understand that the foundation of the creation of God is the Word of God. That's how He created this world. Now I want to draw you an analogy. Can I do that in your mind? You can build a skyscraper. The uh, Engineers build them all the time. Uh, businesses build them all the time. You can go sometime to a big city. I don't know why you'd want to, but you may. And if you go to a big city, uh, you'll see all these big old tall skyscrapers. And man, they've got all the engineering in the world. I mean, they've got them earthquake-proof. They've got them flood-proof. They've got them wind-proof. They've got them fire-proof. They've, they've got them all kinds of proof in the world. And uh, they can build it up and it can have all the structural integrity in the world. But do you know what they have to do before they build that skyscraper? They've got to do one simple thing. They've got to pour the footings and lay the foundation. And do you know that no matter what they do, if the foundation doesn't hold, it's going to go to pieces. can have all of the beauty in all of the world, all the structural integrity, all the soundness in the world. But if the foundation goes, it all goes. You say, preacher, how do you know the Word of God is true? How do you know? Preacher, how do you know that you don't just believe this because you were raised that way? How do you know that this is not just a cultural thing? Let me tell you how I know that. I know that because when I look around at this world, it's still functioning. It's not spiraling out of control. You see, if the foundation were to be untrue, that's why the Bible says in the book of Psalms, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? The foundation, the Word of God upon which everything was built, is still standing true. And no matter what exists in this world that was built by the Word of God and upon the Word of God, no matter what exists in this world, I know that the foundations are still true. No matter how rotten this world gets, I know the foundation's still right. I know it's absolutely true. And so you say, well, could Christ have not risen from the dead? No more than the sky could be green and the ground be blue. No more than up be down and down be up. No more than the water turn into hair and the seas begin to rage and to burn. No more than any of that could happen could the resurrection of Christ not have taken place. He had to be resurrected because of the promise of God. I want to give you, I don't know, 12th, 18th thing. I'd say because the power of Christ, death could not hold him. We already touched on it, so I won't dwell on it long. But John ten seventeen says, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Death could not hold him because of the power that he had. He's the only person that's ever existed that had the right to die and the right to live again. No man is really his own master. That's the truth of it. Uh, you know, I, I was thinking about this the other day, and I think I even touched on it in a sermon. The greatest liberty that we have is in the choosing of our master. We have no greater liberty beyond that. We get to choose what governs us. But every one of us is governed by something. Christ was not governed by something. Christ was the governor. <laughs> Christ was not ruled and, and reigned by someone. He was the one that was ruling and reigning. And Christ had the absolute power to die when He chose to. You and I, we can have our life ripped from us, but the Son of God couldn't. No man taketh it from me. The Jews couldn't have put Him on the cross if He didn't want to go. The Romans couldn't have put Him on the cross if He wanted to go. All the combined armies of past, present, future, all the combined armies of hell, every single Christ-hater and infidel that's ever lived, every single person that's drawn a breath, all working in tandem and together could not have put Him on the cross. 
He said, no man taketh my life from me. No man. No one can put me on that cross. But he said, I lay down my life. I choose to do it. But he said, just as I laid it down, I take it up again. He said, I've received this commandment of my Father. In other words, death couldn't hold him because death didn't have the rank enough to hold him. Death couldn't hold him because death didn't have the authority to hold him. Christ had more power than death. I'm thankful that to this day Christ has more power than death has. You say, well, I don't know if I believe that. Well, talk to a believer right before they're about to enter into death's veil. You'll find out Christ has more power than death. Death's a pretty big motivator in this world. If you threaten a man's life, you can get him to do just about anything. But that's not so about the believer, or it ought not to be. Because death is not something that we should fear. Death does not have... And do you know why? Not because death is not as powerful as me, Toby Weber. But because death is not as powerful as my Savior, Jesus Christ. He's given me something to rejoice in and to rejoice about. He's given me a hope and a joy that no man can take. And He's given me a confidence and courage that even death can't rattle or shake. I would say because the power of Christ, but I would say also because He is the Prince of Life. The Bible says in John chapter 11 and verse number 25, it says, Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. John 14, 6, we read it this morning, but Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. John chapter number 1 says that in him was life, and his life was the light of men. The fact is, is that Christ at his very nature is life. Now we're dealing with some very abstract things when we talk about this. We're entering the, what the scientists would call the metaphysical realm. How do, you, how do you define life? Is it something you can touch, that you can feel, that you can measure? No, it's not. It's the experience of consciousness. And it's the experience of bliss and pleasure and joy. It's liberty. It is excitement. It is jubilation. It is peace. It is mercy. It is all of these things. In other words, life is Christ. Christ is life. You know what Paul said? Paul said, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. Now some would say, well, what Paul's saying is, it's my will to die, but it's Christ's will for me to live. And I think that's partially true. But I believe it goes further than that. I believe what Paul is saying is he's saying, when I live, I'm an expression of Christ. He said it differently in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. He said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. So here's the question I would have for you. Could the Prince of Life ever be bound eternally in the darkness of death's chains? Him by His very nature could not shroud Himself in darkness and death forever. The Prince of Life could not be bound in that way. Him who is life and giveth life and is the giver of life cannot be bound in that way forever. I could probably give you a hundred more tonight. Don't get nervous, I won't. But these five came to my mind. 
Now you may say tonight, well, preacher, that's good and that's beautiful. But what does it mean to me? It means a few things. One of them is this. We're all facing death. I don't care who you are. We don't know when. We might not know how. But we're all facing death. For the believer, we don't have to face death in fear. Because just as death could not hold our Lord, the Bible says, for our life is hid with Christ in God. That we're dead already. Dead unto sin. Dead unto unrighteousness. Dead unto the payment that we owed. And our life is hid with Christ in God. If death couldn't hold Him, listen now, death can't hold us. It's just a doorway. For those that could be here, and some of you are thinking, Preacher, it's, it's Easter Sunday night. There ain't nobody in here that don't know God. Well, there ain't nobody in here that knows for sure there ain't somebody in here that don't know God. We don't know. Every single one of us in this room were accountable only unto God and only for ourselves. And there could be someone in this room that would have to admit, I'm not sure if I know Christ. Could I say this? Death has a hold on you right now, but it doesn't have to. He died your death so that you could live His life and you can know Christ as your Savior. And let me say to those that know that they're saved, that know that they're right with God, could I say to you tonight, you may have loved ones that are facing death without Christ. Time is short. Time is so short. Why is it we have to get to the place where we're staring death in the face to realize time is short? Any moment, any moment we could leave this world, we ought to be praying for our loved ones.